John chapter 17, we're going to start reading at verse 12 and then read down through verse 19. And we're going to hone in really on verses uh, 15 down through 19. Before we read, uh, let's uh, pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you've given us your inspired, infallible word. We know it will accomplish what you have sent it out to do. And we look forward to encountering you in it. So as we pause for a moment and not only read your word, but uh, think about it, hear it, speak about it. We pray that you would overcome all of our weaknesses and that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of us to give us what we need. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, uh, John 17 at verse uh, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless us to our hearts and lives. This morning, so beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, uh, John's gospel, just as a whole, is about this incredible, massive Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Logos, whose beginnings are in eternity, whose ministry is unparalleled, who did so many things according to John that couldn't all be written down, even if you got all the paper in the whole world, and whose claims about himself are so big that no one around him could just sort of be indifferent about him. Everybody who heard him talk, heard him speak, saw him minister, had these reactions to him because he's that big of a figure in his day and all the way down to this day, the biggest figure in human history. The only one, the only human being who is fully God, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh And John writes his gospel about Jesus Christ, giving us signs and Jesus teaching and the upper room discourse, which is unparalleled. And then especially this high priestly prayer so that we would believe in him. And it's indeed for those who don't believe that they would come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the hope of the world, the savior of the world. And in him, you have life without him. You have nothing but destruction to look forward to. But also that believers would grow in our belief in him that we become more and more convinced that indeed he is our savior. He is the one that we need and in him is life and life abundantly. And what's fascinating about John's gospel is not only the, the, uh, the, the science he records and what he says about it, but this high priestly prayer, which again is unique. We've noticed that a few weeks I've mentioned that. No other gospel has this prayer. And in it, we see the heart of Jesus Christ being poured out to his father. What, would, what do you think the father and son would talk about? What would, that, what would that look like? What would Jesus ask for his father? What was he praying about 
on those many nights when it was this habit to go out and pray at night. But we don't know. This could have been one of those things. Maybe this was unique and he had never prayed any of this before, but maybe it was a recurring prayer. And now finally we get the record of it in John 17. But regardless, we have Jesus Christ crying out to his father for the life of the church, for the well-being of his people, for the well-being of those that he came to save. Now, this puts you and I as believers in some incredibly cherished position, beloved. This puts every Christian and the church, Jesus' bride, in an incredibly loved place that Jesus, before he would go to the cross, made sure to pray not only for him and his ministry, but for us, for his disciples, and then for us who would come after his disciples. And we're looking at this little a bit here as far, as far as what Jesus prays under the heading kind of marks of the church, marks of a healthy church, or marks for a church that's prayed for by Jesus. And we're noticing what are some characteristics of a church. What does this look like? Because Jesus is praying this for his disciples, the apostles who are the foundation of the church. And what's true of them is going to be, Lord willing, true of us as a church as well. And so we've looked at a mark of the church as joy. The church will be hated and it will be present yet protected. And I want to pick up with that a little bit, present yet protected in verse 15. And then also walk into a church is going to be otherworldly or we're strangers and aliens here. The church is sent and also the church is holy. So I want to look at those four things. The church is present and protected. It's otherworldly. It's sent and it's holy. So first, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, verse 15. The church is present and protected. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the church as an organization, we kind of looked at this. I felt like I gave it short shrift. That is in the world, but not of the world. We're present in the world. Jesus doesn't want us taken out of it. But while we're in the world, we're protected. He asks that we be kept from evil, what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one, depending on how you want to translate that word. We notice some believers have tried to live the monastic life, tried to escape the world, tried to not live in the world, trying to create a little bit of a heaven on earth, and we can all understand that impulse. But Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you just keep them from evil while they live in the world. And we might ask, what does that look like? What does it look like to be, to be in the world, but not of it? And we can see no greater example of this than in the life of Jesus Christ himself. He was a friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Matthew 9 records this in verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why did this concern the Pharisees? Because they thought holiness, they thought not being of the world, they thought living for God meant you avoid all contact with such people. Don't be around them. Have nothing to do with them. In Matthew 11, Jesus was so much like this that we're told the Son of Man came eating and drinking. These are Jesus' words. And they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the reputation he had amassed because he hung around with the unmentionables of his day as someone who's in the world, but kept from evil. Obviously perfect, unique, right? We're not going to be perfect like Jesus, but it's a model. It's interesting. He's not just our savior, but also our example. And as I was thinking about this, what does it look like to be this, a bunch of 
references came to mind as far as ways to do this in the world. Now, these are unique, but hopefully get us thinking about how can we be in the world? Because Jesus said, I don't pray, Father, that you take them out of the world. Uh Uh-uh, leave them in it. But when they're in the world, keep them from evil. So he wants us here ministering in this world, but as a people who are holy, more on the holiness in just a bit. I remember in seminary, there was a adjunct history professor, brilliant guy, who had what he called a pastor at the pub. And I've mentioned this before. So on a particular night, he would go to the local pub, the local bar and grill, and he would talk theology with anybody who wanted to talk theology. Sometimes people from church would come, but he established relationships with the bartender, with other people at the bar, and was cognizant of, hey, I'm going to be kept from evil. He's not going there to get drunk, but he's cognizant. I'm I'm in the world, and I'm going to do what I can to be an influence in this world for not only my church members who want to come, fellow believers, but also for those who don't know the Lord. Uh, There was a ministry in Springfield. I can't remember the name. I think it's actually a nationwide ministry that had a ministry to people in strip clubs. So husband and wife teams would show up to them. The husbands obviously would stay outside and the wives would go in and the husbands would be praying outside and they would try and minister to these ladies inside, getting them to come out. They would give them a job, a place to live, some other means other than what they were doing. And they also have this ministry regarding children that are caught up in that trade. And again, they're in the world, kept from evil. They're doing this above above reproach, but in the world. How does the world need us to minister to them? Divine Hope Seminary. We've had Paul Ipema and Nathan Brummel that have come here and preached from Divine Hope Reform Seminary. I remember when I was in seminary, it was just it was two OPC elders had gone to Stateville Correctional Center, a maximum security prison in Illinois, and they had started reaching out among inmates, spreading the gospel and also encouraging believers because there were some believers in there. And I think some of the believers, they became members of that OPC church that these two elders were from originally. And there was no seminary yet. And David Robbins, uh, who's, I think he's a minister, a pastor of the OPC, a missionary, he drove me out there. I only went there a couple of times uh, to preach and to see this ministry, which was not an official ministry at that point, but just incredible, the outreach of these elders, that local church to go into this prison setting and be of the world, part of the world, but not of it, right? Not, uh, they're kept from evil, being a witness in the world. And all of us do this in our ways as well, just as neighbors, because whether we want to believe it or not, our neighbors are watching us and we're left in the world for many reasons, one of which is to be a witness and we're supposed to be delivered from evil as we do that. Christians are not to be those people who are scared of the world, scared to live in it, scared to interact with it. If we were to be doing, Jesus has overcome the world. He doesn't want us afraid of that. What we are cognizant of and what is on our radar is sin, our own sin, being kept from evil and being guarded from evil as we live in a world that's filled with sinners who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are broken like we were before we came to faith and we still are as we're trying to grow in the faith. And so we're in the world. We're just not doing what the world does. So I don't want any of us to be going out into the world thinking, oh, Jesus prayed that we just be separated out of this. No, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Uh Uh-uh, leave them in it. 
but just keep them from evil. Grant them holiness and life. Keep them from the wiles of the devil and all of his ways of tempting us and dragging us into the pit. Now, Pella is a town which historically has tried to avoid dealing with difficult situations. Pella, historically, we like sin not just out of our lives. We like it out of our town. We don't like to see it. We don't like to see the ugliness of it. We're a tourist town. Make it picture perfect. Make it look neat and tidy. Family issues, anything like that, tuck it under the rug. That's historically what has often take place. I think things are changing. But if that's the kind of community we live in, beloved, it's going to be very tempting then when we see, because we're all, to whatever extent we are, products of our culture, whether we like to be or not, and we're influenced by those things. It's easy for us as Christians to live this neat, nice, tidy life and to avoid having to deal with living in a world that's filled with people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we create a sort of monastic life, not by living in a building, chanting scripture passages, but by living in our little Christian bubble. Living like we're scared of the world. Living like nothing else matters. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. We're in the world. We're just kept from evil in it. And just let me mention this, because I know this is a peculiar temptation for those who are maybe wired more like me, that we can go off into the world. Some of us are uh, law abiders. Some of us by, by nature, where we think, hey, I'm a really good person. I'm going to obey the law. Some of us are lawbreakers in the sense, well, all of us are lawbreakers, but you get the point, uh, antinomian. And so we say, hey, look, to be in the world means I can just go partake of it. And if that's our wiring, I want you to look at the last half of verse 15 and see that. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but keep them from evil. So beloved, as we live in the world, we're going to have to watch very carefully as we live in the world, as we love people who are in the world and be a witness to people in the world, make sure we don't cross over that line where we are no different than the world and where our lives bear no difference at all in how we talk, in how we live, and how we repent and forgive, our lives are to be markedly different than those who are in the world around us who don't believe in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want us to notice this morning is that the church is an otherworldly organization, verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, to be part of the world is just to uh, be in the world and go along with the course of the world. It's to love the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. It's to just be enamored with everything you can see and to chase after created things and kick God off the throne and put created things on the throne and say, you're my true love. That's what it is to chase after the world. And Jesus says, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world, which means that the church is an organization and every one of us as part of it is as well identified with that. We're strangers and exiles here. We're sojourners. We do not belong to this world, ultimately. I'm guessing we have citizenship in this country as Americans. I'm guessing most of us would raise our hands and say, I'm an American citizen, absolutely. But our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And so we submit to our governing leaders, but we ultimately submit. When it collides with our leader in heaven, we ultimately submit to our God in heaven. And we have a lot of things we have to do in this world 
as belonging to this world, but ultimately we don't belong here. And so we're actually serving a God who can't be seen with the naked eye. We're serving a kingdom that can't be seen. And that's where our true loyalties lie. We're strangers here in this world. 1 Peter 1, 1, to those who are elect exiles. Beloved, if you're a Christian, you are chosen. Catch what Peter's saying. To those who are elect exiles, chosen to be an exile. That, that sounds like a great selection course, doesn't it? You were chosen to be a stranger here. Uh, how, how do you like? You were chosen to be a sojourner, to be an exile. You were chosen to be an outsider and an outcast in this world. How? You were made a citizen of another world, which means in this world, you will not find it to be an incredibly welcoming and delightful place. Even if it is externally, your heart won't let you do that. Your heart will say, uh-uh, no, we're not home yet. Hebrews 12, 13, this has been the case for believers all the way since the days of Abraham. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And Jacob so acknowledged this and understood it that in front of Pharaoh in Genesis 47, 9, he said, the days of the years of my sojourning, my exile, my being a stranger in this world are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Emphasis. We're strangers here. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What has characterized God's people, believers, since the very beginning is that we don't belong to this world. And when Jesus came, he made it crystal clear my kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't belong here either. This is the tug of war that we will feel when we live in this world. Citizens of Pella, Iowa, America, but ultimately citizens of heaven. And you'll, you'll feel that on the inside, that tug. What do I do? How do I act? How do I speak? Where do my loyalties lie? When do I say uncle? When do I jump off the roof? And we'll all have differences the way we do it. But all of us as believers have this in common. We are not of the world. Now, we know this intuitively, right? I can think of an example, things that just don't belong. I remember in high school, I, I've, so, uh, disclaimer here, this is not how I hope any of you kids approach school, but I never liked school at all, any subject, period. I, all K through 12 in college was a less than ideal experience for me, except two classes. I loved shop and I loved home ec. Now in shop class, it was mainly all boys. There was one girl in our class, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that she was an outsider. She was in the class, but she was an outsider in the class and didn't belong. And in HOMAC, I think my class had 20, uh, 20 gals in it, and I, was, I think there were two of us boys there. We took it just for fun. It was actually kind of fun baking and doing that sort of stuff. Gave us, we got to stand up. didn't have to sit in the desk, which was awesome. Same thing with shop class. You got to move around a little bit. But in there, it didn't take a rocket scientist to walk into this HOMAC class and observe, hey, these guys are outsiders. They don't belong here. Beloved, in the same way, when we go in this world, it's going to be fairly obvious to people who don't believe when they look at your life and mine, or at least it will become obvious or it should become obvious, that we don't belong here. You can imagine people looking at a whole lineup of human beings and how they live and what they do and how they spend their money and their priorities and what motivates them. Like, you know, all these people, 
they got a lot in common, but there's these people who say they're Christians, they stand out as not belonging in this lineup. They're just different. It's like they belong to a different world. Just like Jesus, their Savior. There's something markedly different about them. Beloved, that is true of you and me. Our origin is from above. That's why Jesus can say, truly, truly, you must be born from above in John 3. Born again, born from above. Our origin is from above. We are not from this world. What does this look like? The world winks at sin. We repent of it, right? That proves we're not of this world. The world believes money is something to live for. We believe money is something to be stewarded for God's glory. The world believes external appearance determines your worth. We believe the heart is what matters most about a person. The world believes your, uh, your best life is satisfying your urges. We believe the best life is self-denial. The world believes this life is what you can see is ultimate reality. Whatever you can see is ultimate. We believe the next life and what you cannot see is ultimate reality. The world says aggressiveness is true power. We believe meekness is. The world says it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're doing all you can to be a good person. We believe that unless you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you will spend forever in hell because there are no good people. No human being is good enough to merit heaven. The world says pride and self-confidence are the most attractive qualities of a human being. We believe humility and a focus on others are the most attractive qualities of a human being. In pretty much every category, we could just go down the list. We will discover, you know what? I just don't belong here. I serve a king who's part of a different world, and I am as well. Well, the third thing I want us to notice that Jesus prays about is that his people are sent, or a sent people, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And the language used here, sent, is the language from which we get the word apostle. It means sent with a commission or sent on a defined mission by a superior. So Jesus is saying, look, I was sent on a defined mission to seek and save the lost by a superior, as it were, right? Not a superior ultimately, but by God the Father. Jesus has come to do his will. And Jesus said, as I was sent, so I'm sending them. So in the same way, we're sent by a superior, our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world on a defined mission. Now the New Testament defines what that mission is. Can talk about the Great Commission, worshiping and praising God, growing in holiness without which we won't see the Lord, bearing witness, etc., uh, loving others, doing life in the church together. There's a lot of different characteristics of the mission that we're sent on, but we're sent out into this world on a mission by Jesus. I don't know why you think you're here, but I can tell you, beloved from this passage, why we are here, because we have a mission to do. We've been called to be exiles, to be strangers here, and we're on mission. You know, one thing interesting about Jehovah's Witnesses when they do their thing, they, they are on mission, aren't they? They're dressed like they're on mission. They got the backpack like they're on mission. They do their thing on mission, right? We have a different mission, obviously, a mission that is directly opposed to their mission. But as believers, every one of us has a mission. We are only here for a very short while. Our time is short. And Jesus has sent us on a mission. The mission is to bring him glory. The mission is to praise him all the days of our life. The mission is to grow in holiness. The mission is to love other people well and to love God above all. The mission is to be a witness for him as a church. 
The church is not an organization in the world that God said, hey, look, I'm going to save you and just go huddle up in a room. We'll call it the upper room. Lock the door, throw away the key and never come out. No, told the disciples, you go in the upper room, you wait and you're going to receive what? Power. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And then what's going to happen? You're going to be sent. You're going to go. Beloved, that's what the church is here for to be those who are sent out into the world. We've not been sent to drown our souls in the ways of the world, as did Lot, who tormented his righteous soul, setting up camp as close to sin as he possibly could in the ways of the world around Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not sent here to be like Demas, who deserted Paul because he fell in love with the world. We're here to bear witness to Jesus Christ. We're here to obey him. We're here to grow, beloved while we wait for heaven to come. Jesus Christ is our master. He's our superior. And as he was sent in this world on a mission, so he sends us on a mission as well. And one more thing, we'll close with this, but it'll take just a little bit. The church is called to be holy. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify has to do with setting apart that you can set something apart positionally, and that is sometimes how this word sanctify or to holify is used in the New Testament. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed this out in his sermon entitled The Special People of God. He's got actually got a whole series of sermons on John 17. It's like a 400-page book. Really good stuff. I commend it to you, uh, but uh, it'll take a while. Um, but in, in this sermon, The Special People of God, he points out that the Bible uses the language of sanctify or set apart to describe our position, meaning we've already been sanctified in one sense. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, that whole list, right? Will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you, but you were washed, catch this, you were sanctified, past tense, completed action, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be a saint, that is set apart positionally. Now that's one use of this language, sanctification, to be sanctified, is to be put in a different position, set apart for special use by God. In the Old Covenant, mountains were sanctified, temple utensils were sanctified. Things were set apart for special use by God. But what Jesus is emphasizing here is not that positional sanctification, but the personal sanctification. Set them apart in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is, more and more, by your word, make them holy. Make them people devoted to you. Set them apart Grow them in faith. What is this kind of sanctification? What does it mean to uh, be set apart and to be sanctified? By the truth, it means this. Let me give you a Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 35 definition quick, and then we'll work with it. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God, and we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Now, what does this mean? It means the church is a place where people grow. The church is a place 
where more and more we become holy and sanctified by the truth. I want us to notice that word, the language of the truth, by the truth or in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119, 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word works, beloved. The more we use the word, the Holy Spirit takes that word and brings it all the way home. We start sinning less. That's part of growth, legitimately sinning less, like not just fake, not just a self-righteous comment, yeah, I'm more holy than you are. No, we actually grow in holiness so that this year we're more holy than last year. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. By what's the pure spiritual milk? It's the word of God. By it, we do what? We grow up into salvation. Jesus is praying that his church will be a place where the word of God is taken seriously, but not just taken seriously, like, oh, we ascribe authority to it, but it's, it's read, it's proclaimed, it's held high, it's viewed as what? Our spiritual food that we need if we're going to grow. And if we don't have it, we're not going to grow. We need the truths found in the Bible. A church and a believer which does not focus on and feed upon the word of God will be a church and a believer which is not growing. And consequently, vice versa, a church which is dealing with the word of God and believers who are, we will see that we grow. Now, this is not some magic formula, beloved, but it is indeed how God has caused his kingdom to operate. We come to faith and then as we get to know the word more and more, we see him in it. The word is not an end in itself. It's a revelation of God. We get to know him, how this world operates, who we are as we study it. This means a few things. Let me just pause for a moment to walk through it. The word of God works by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is not a magic wand. So if we want to convert the nations, we just go out into the world and just be like, hey, I'm just going to Read Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation, and just by that reading of it, people will come to faith. How the Holy Spirit has to work. But the Word of God, with the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, actually does its work. I've encountered some Christians, I'm sure we all have, I've been one before, who don't think it works. And sometimes upon further inquiry, we discover that we're not actually feeding ourselves on it. Oh yeah, the, the word, I, you know, I've tried that, it doesn't work. Well, maybe you read some passages, but did you really think what this has to do with you and what it's calling you to? Maybe you've memorized some passages, but have you actually heard that word and understood that word as this is authoritative for your life? And you need to obey. It's called to believe in Jesus and to follow him in this way and to die to self. Because sometimes there's a disconnect between our brains and our souls, our hearts, you know, that 18-inch gap people like to talk about. Or maybe it's 14 if we're shorter or, or 12 if we're really young. But that gap, right? Yeah, I know it. I've read it. Yeah, but have you, have you really read it? Have you meditated on it, thought about it? Let the Holy Spirit sink it in. Because the truths work on us, beloved. Slowly but surely. And I've also encountered believers who doesn't think it works because they are not achieving the results they would like fast enough. This is where I, the camp I fall into. Very can be very impatient. Lord, I, I want to grow in this way. I need to go in this way in about an hour. 
I need to be completely done with this sort of sin. And I'm trusting we all have that because sin is not enjoyable. But how does the word work? How does God sanctify us? It's a slow process over time. And Jesus prays that for his church, set them apart, sanctify them and grow them by the word in the truth that's of your word. Something else I think is worth thinking about is this means the church is a place where growth occurs and the primary tool that is used for our growth is the Bible. This is why we read the Bible, why we preach the Bible, the Holy Spirit uses it. It changes us and all healthy churches unapologetically and systematically use the Bible for the spiritual growth of believers. If we're ever asking, where should I go to church someday? And you visit churches and you look at churches and you discover, we're not even talking denominations here. You discover that you go to that church and they do not take the Bible seriously. Just walk out, just leave. Because if they're not using the word of God, you can expect I'm not gonna grow. There's something else going on. This is not where I want to be. Now it's possible to use the word and take it seriously and use it very wrong. I, I get that. But churches are places where the word of God is held high as the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. And it's necessary for our salvation and our growth. Churches are places where believers are challenged by the word of God to grow. Beloved, if we have to grow, that means we're going to hear some things. We're going to have to, we're going to find some things in the Bible, whether through personal study, Bible study, Sundays, reading, preaching, whatever the case may be, that challenge us and that we've got to deal with. It's really easy to say, I've got to grow. It's another thing to come to grips with that reality. Yeah, I have to grow. That means what? There's areas of my life that are not what they should be. And then the Bible comes in and it speaks to that. And I'm convicted by that. I want to get rid of the conviction, but I can't because it's true. And I got to deal with that. And I have to work through it. And I have to own my sin. Beloved, that's, that's what happens in the church. That's what the church is. It's a place where there are people who come in, we're saved, right? The church is a bunch of, let's say a bunch of believers. We're in this congregation and we're all saying something. We're all saying a lot, but one thing we're saying, I am not there yet. I have not yet obtained, attained to the goal that I'm after. I'm in process. Now I get it. A lot of times people, it's frequent in our day to say, hey, I'm just, I'm broken and I'm on a journey and therefore I can wink at my sin. We're not saying that, I hope. We're saying, yeah, I'm broken, I'm on a journey, but that journey's real and I really want to grow. And the church is a place where I do that in fellowship with other believers. And if we're not what we ought to be yet, what is something we can expect that other people will see in us? Sin, right? You'll see it in me. I'll see it, we'll see it in each other. And so when people talk to us about that, hopefully in a humble way, it shouldn't surprise us because we're all works in progress. And we're letting the Holy Spirit work through the word to slowly but surely change us. And I've had some people, this is a pastor's anecdote that I'm sure a lot of us say, I've had some people come to me and say, Were you, did you have a video camera set up in my home? <laughs> no, I did not. Well, how did you know this about me? I didn't. But we walked through a passage and the Holy Spirit took this broken curvy arrow and shot straight to their heart to convince them, I have to grow this way. You know, so often it's entirely unrelated to what the sermon was even about, what the passage was about. That's how the Holy Spirit works so often. Beloved, the Holy Spirit uses the word to sanctify us and to grow us.
and it's going to be uncomfortable. Ironically, though, churches are sometimes the most inhospitable places to grow in holiness. The church is an institution designed by God for our spiritual growth, yet it's so often the most inhospitable place to admit you're a sinner. You know, right now you can go out in the world, probably at your place of work, and admit, you know, I messed up. I messed up as a parent. I messed up as a neighbor. I've committed this sin. What are the unmentionables that are going through your head? Just, just say them. Don't say them, but you know, you know the things. You could go, and, and people, they probably wouldn't even bat an eye a lot of them come into the church and say, hey, I've got this problem. This is the sin I'm wrestling with. And all of a sudden, what often takes place, sadly, is tons of gossip. Everybody starts to know. And all of a sudden, you're, you're put in a category all by yourself as, ooh, a really big sinner. What's characteristic of the church is that we're all beloved in that category. Some of our sins are dealt with right now, and they become clear. There will be others of our sins that will become clear on the last day. But we all have to grow. And I realize some sins are they're a little smellier than others. I don't know how to categorize this. Bigger, smaller, whatever. More social consequences to it. All right? But we're all growing. And the church, of all the institutions in the world, the church ought to be the one place you can come into and say, I'm a sinner and I have to grow this way and be fully loved, accepted, and helped with humility. That ought to be the church because we're all growing by the word. And then one more thing I want to mention. J.C. Ryle had this quote, which was so good. I just wrote it down. I don't even know if it fits. I think it does. It's on this passage. Holy living, think holiness, sanctification, is the great proof of the reality of Christianity. Men may refuse to see the truth of our arguments, but they cannot evade the evidence of a godly life. Beloved, we're sent, right? We just got done looking at that. Verse 18, we're sent on a mission. Holiness is vital to that. Being sanctified and set apart by the word growing is vital to that mission. When you go out into the world, when I go out into the world and people see these people are godly, they're not only godly, but and part of godliness is humility, but people don't realize that. They're godly. They're also humble about it. How does this work? They are legitimately loving and kind, but not proud of it. And they are not condescending. That's something I want to know about. Holiness is vital to our mission of being sent into the world. Let me close with this. Verse 19, for their sake, I consecrate myself and they also, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I, the, the translation, I, I get it, makes sense, but it's hiding something in the ESV. For their sake, I sanctify myself. The verb consecrate is the exact same one that Jesus has been using in verse 17 and 19 that's translated sanctify or sanctified. So Jesus says, verse 19, for their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is Jesus getting at? I set myself apart so that we can be sanctified in the truth, set apart and grown. This is incredible. At this point in John's gospel, the disciples don't really know what that means. I set myself apart so that they could be set apart. But they're about ready to find out. Early Friday morning right now, Jesus is going to be soon in the hands of Judas and his club-bearing betrayers. He's going to be in Annas 
Caiaphas presence. He'll be in front of Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. And finally, he'll be walking all the way up the cross. What does it mean to be set apart? What kind of thing was Jesus set apart for? Huh, to die in the place of people who are sinful and desperately need to be sanctified. Desperately need to be set apart. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to all the church, keep this in mind when you want to grow. And when holiness is hard, I set myself apart for a work that you couldn't accomplish. I set myself apart to do an obedience you don't even have the ability to do and to suffer on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven and set apart for the glory of my Father. Peter mentions this and makes it really clear in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's him setting himself apart that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did Jesus die? To save souls? Absolutely. And also so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He suffered so that we could grow, beloved. That's tremendous. Now, I hope this puts our desire for growth in a brand new category. Not, oh, I have to. But, oh, Jesus did all this for me so that I'd have the possibility to grow, and I could, yes. Well, now I'm going to dive into the Word. Now I want to grow. Now more and more I want to be like Him. And there might be some of us who think, you know, it's really hard. The holiness comes with a lot of baggage sometimes. Uh, holier than thou, you know, Christians can be made fun of, and so we might reject that. Here's a way to redefine holiness and sanctification being set apart in growth. Jesus is the ultimate. He's our example, Peter says in 1 Peter 2. What are the areas of your life that don't yet look like him? What are the areas of my heart and your hearts that aren't yet motivated like he was? What are the areas of our thinking of our deeds that aren't yet like him? Because when you put it that way and you look at how perfect Jesus was, like, oh, I have to be more like him. Yes. Yes, he's the law keeper. And here's an example of what law keeping looks like. How do I need to grow? Lord, grow me. Lord, grant that the church I'm part of will keep dealing with the truth and be a place where I can grow in the truth through believers that I'm in fellowship with. Let's pray.